Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey, Alarmy. Before we get started, we wanted to make sure you heard the big news. The Alarmist has joined Patreon. Patreon subscribers will get access to our content ad-free, as well as our aftermath post-interview discussion and final verdict. We'll also be putting out additional bonus episodes and other fun stuff. Here's a preview of Guest Alarmist, where I step aside and let a guest walk us through a personal tragedy, and together the Alarmist crew figures out who's to blame. This month, Leah Poliot discusses the sisterhood of the traveling disaster. But I, but I do want to say it's like what always happens, too, is that like you have these like, you know, destinations you want to go to. But then something always happens along the way. There's always magic involved. Yeah, what's it's the magic. The, what's such the bummer is that Leah and Sarah didn't get to kind of find those pockets of magic in their well, did travels. you? We don't know. Was there a magical moment, even though all this chaos was going on, that you guys think about, like, with fond memories? There, there was some ravioli that we had when we first got into France. <laughs> That's uh, great. And <laughs> that is still magical in my heart. Great. It was the only place open from before dinner. We got in. It was like three or four at a weird time. Nobody was at this restaurant best ravioli i've ever had in my entire life oh that's that's i'm so happy for you yeah (laughs) go to patreon.com slash the alarmist and subscribe today now on to our episode each week we decide who's to blame for a historical tragedy and each week you tell us if we got it right my name is rebecca delgado smith and this is the aftermath aftermath Hey everyone, thanks for tuning into this episode of The Aftermath. Today we're speaking with guest expert, Captain Scott Miller. Scott is an aviation lecturer at San Jose State University. 
Scott is also a certified flight instructor at the CFI Flight School in Sacramento, as well as a pilot for a major U.S. airline. Let's hear what he has to say about Malaysian Airlines Flight 370. Hi, Scott. Thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure. So how long have you been in the aviation industry and, and what sparked your interest in it? Well, I was one of those kids when I was five or six years old after taking a family trip to my uh, dad's birthplace in Iowa from Sacramento. I realized flying airplanes is what I wanted to do. And uh, uh, I was very fortunate as soon as I graduated high school, started taking private pilot lessons uh, at the local airport in Sacramento when I was 18, got my private pilot certificate and uh, never really looked back. So I'd lo- like to start off um, by by talking about the Malaysian Airlines Flight 370 and and you know how it uh, it was a normal flight. It was March eighth, two thousand fourteen. Um, flight 370 takes off from Kuala Lumpur shortly after twelve thirty a.m. and and from all accounts, it was it was a pretty normal takeoff. Can you can you walk us through it? Yeah, there was nothing unusual about any of the pre-flight preparations or the uh, uh, the aircraft was loaded. They boarded passengers, cargo, fuel, I'm sure some meals as well. Uh, pushed back from the gate, uh, I believe it was a little bit early even, and uh, taxied out, took off into the night sky and carried on with its programmed route of flight. Uh, nothing at all to indicate that uh, there would be any anomalies coming up in the flight. And from your experience, based on on what we know now, when do things sort of take a turn? What what suddenly becomes unusual during this flight? When they, as they're progressing across uh, up north through the various air traffic control agencies, they were talking to Singapore Air Traffic Control. They got to the boundary between uh, Singapore and uh, Ho Chi Minh control, the southern control area that Vietnam operates. They were given a routine handoff, as we call it, uh, told to contact the Ho Chi Minh controller's frequency. And they said, we'll go goodbye. And no contact was ever made again with the aircraft. So that basically it went from... Uh, completely normal to a very uh, unusual and tragic situation, literally in the blink of an eye. And there, there seemed to be some confusion between air fa- traffic controllers around uh, one nineteen a.m. Uh, that's when the final uh, uh, message or, or the final goodbye was, was heard. What is it and, and why are the different, why were the different government agencies very slow to communicate I think part of it was uh, not so much the late hour itself. I'm sure that uh, that played a small role in it just because like any organization at night, you know, things are a little more quiet, a little more mellow, not quite the full staff that you might see during the middle of the day. And I think there might've been a little bit of complacency because it was up to that point. It had been such a routine exchange and a routine flight. Um, it's believe it or not, it's not uncommon for aircraft to maybe not be in communication for short periods of time. You know, maybe thirty seconds to a minute, or even a couple of minutes, particularly on a on a handover like that. So the Vietnamese controllers knew that the aircraft was coming, but uh, when it didn't, uh, because there's some uh, uh, coordination that happens 
between the air traffic control facilities before the instruction is given to the aircraft to contact the new controller. Basically, the controller that's handing the airplane off sends a message uh, to the new controller saying, hey, here comes an airplane your way. That controller accepts control. When that occurs, that's when the uh, controller handing the airplane off notifies the airplane to contact new control. So that, that obviously occurred. And so the controller was waiting for it. But again, as I mentioned, you know, a couple minute delay is not, uh, it's not every flight, but it's not unusual. And then all of a sudden, though, I'm sure it dawned on somebody, wait a minute, we haven't heard from Malaysia 370. First thing they did was look at the radar screen to see where the aircraft was on the radar display, and it wasn't there. And what is the standard protocol then for reporting an unresponsive aircraft? And, and how did that compare to what actually happened? Yeah, there does seem to appear to be some delay on that. Uh, the first thing that should have happened was some transmissions uh, on the frequency from the controller looking for the airplane. I imagine that occurred. The Vietnamese, I believe, were a little reticent to release uh, a whole lot of information, at least into the general public. Uh, then they would uh, contact the controller where they received the airplane and said, hey, we still haven't talked to them. Are, are you talking to them or, or what's happening here? And then at that point, there are uh, additional notifications that would be made uh, to other surrounding air traffic control facilities, all in an attempt to try to locate this airplane. It does appear that all of that occurred, but uh, there appears also to have been a little bit of a delay in starting those protocols. And what happens, there's no sign of this flight, and eventually, when the flight doesn't arrive at its destination at the time that it's supposed to uh, arrive what what happens then who spearheads the the search and rescue and how misguided is it at the very start well the assumption was made in a, a perfectly reasonable and valid assumption that the aircraft experienced some sort of catastrophic event at that point, right when they received the handoff to Ho Chi Minh control, and it went down in the sea right there. Um, logic and, and common sense led us all to believe that because everything is normal, everything is fine, and then suddenly they're no longer anywhere, and the assumption was that they went right down into the water uh, right there at that point. Um, the Vietnamese notified all the appropriate people. A search and rescue operation was started. Uh, the sun came up and there was not a trace of the airplane in the area where they expected it to see. And that was highly unusual that because uh, uh, they knew, uh, you know, exactly where that point was, where that aircraft was, where it should have been in the water there. And there was absolutely no trace of it. What new information comes into the investigation that that shifts not just the location of the search of the, for the plane, um, but but the theories about what happened to it. So initially, the and this goes to how the radar systems work, and I'm sure you've heard talk of a device called a transponder. So a transponder is a device inside an airplane that uh, transmits a coded pulse unique to that specific flight. We get a transponder code, a four-digit code, as part of our initial air traffic control clearance, 
we dial in that four digit code into our transponder. And now as we fly along, when an, when a radar beam hits the airplane, that radar reflected energy goes back to the radar site, but also the coded messages from the airplane uh, with that specific transponder code. And then the computer, the air traffic control computer recognizes that as in this case, Malaysia 370 and puts a little tag on the radar screen that the controller can see. Uh, that's, uh, there's a number of different terms for it, secondary radar, um, number of things like that. But even if your transponder is not working, what's known as a primary target, which is just the echo, just the actual reflected radar beam, that can be picked up as well. And the first thing they started doing when they realized the plane was lost was they started reviewing the air traffic control, what we call the tapes, the data, because the voices are recorded, but also the radar data itself is recorded. And they started noticing that a primary target started being uh, displayed on the radar scope, starting at the point where Malaysia 370 had made their last final report and they were able to track the movement of that uh, primary target. Now, the thing with primary radar is there is no coded identification, but mm -hmm. obviously pretty logical, you've lost an airplane and all of a sudden there's a primary target out there. You can make the assumption that that in fact was Malaysia 370. And that's how they were able to track that it came back toward the Malay Peninsula and then initially out toward the Southern Indian Ocean. And I mean, we were we were surprised to learn that there are areas in the world, uh, mostly over uh, isolated or, or desolate ocean patches, where where a plane is technically not being tracked all the time. Is this true? Uh, and if so, why? Uh, yeah, it was true in 2014. OK, not so much true anymore now. Uh, in 2014, a new system was just coming online uh, in getting wide use within the airlines that uh, used satellite equipment to track aircraft using transmitters on board the aircraft called ADSB, automatic uh, ADDSB, automatic dependent surveillance broadcast. Um, it was starting to be used in 2014, but it didn't have wide use. Radar, of course, uh, depends on large antennas that typically can only be mounted on uh, land. And you get you can have maybe two to 300 miles at best of radar coverage out over the water. Now, in the case of this particular route, well, Malaysia, three, uh, Malaysia 370, that worked because even though they were over water, they were never far offshore. So they were still able to be in radar contact through much of the flight. Of course, flying from the West Coast of uh, California to Hawaii, for example, um, yeah, you, you're out of radar contact in about 150 miles or so offshore. Uh, but ADSB can take over. Mm. And uh, that can, using the satellites, can pinpoint an aircraft uh, quite precisely. There was another tragedy that occurred in uh, uh, the South Atlantic, um, Air France 447, an Airbus A330. Uh, it was equipped, uh, I'll get to that in a second. The Airbus was equipped with the uh, uh, most advanced communication equipment. When they ran into their problem and unfortunately crashed in the Atlantic Ocean, 
they knew within about a half a mile where that aircraft had hit the water. The Malaysia 370 aircraft, going back to uh, 2014, it was one of the original 777s, 777s that Malaysia uh, Airlines had bought, and it didn't have any of that advanced equipment uh, that was available at the time. Certainly legal, certainly safe. There is radio communication that allows the aircraft to be in touch with air traffic control when they're out over the water outside of radar contact, but it doesn't have the data connection that ADSB affords that allows for precise location of the aircraft. Gotcha. And and, and what was the Malaysian uh, government's response to uh, this missing plane? Um, did did they withhold any information? Uh, that they had? And if so, why would they have done that? Well, that gets into some cultural norms that uh, may not exist in other countries. But the thought in 2014, the thought that an airliner could just disappear Mm -hmm. was so shattering to the aviation world and also to the country of Malaysia itself, particularly in Asia, the, uh, The national airlines in Asia are sources of pride for the countries. It's a way of waving the flag overseas, a way of, uh, you know, projecting their global or projecting their country's heritage across the globe. And uh, this was a very embarrassing thing for Malaysian airlines and the government of Malaysia as well. And I believe, in my opinion, that drove a little bit of their reticence in the beginning of the investigation to be as to be as forthcoming as they could. I believe behind the scenes they were. I believe working with uh, the other government agencies, the search and rescue folks, and uh, the folks that were offering the help to, because it was a true international uh, effort to try to find this aircraft. I believe they were probably being much more forthcoming with uh, the governments behind the scenes, but we weren't seeing that in uh, in the public sphere. What can you tell us about uh, the pilots that were flying this plane um, on that day or that night? How, how experienced yeah. were they and what was their dynamic? Yeah, the captain was one of the most senior captains uh, flying for Malaysian Airlines. Had been there I, over 20 years. Um, a lot of respect. Uh, and, and again, in a lot of countries, particularly in Asia, um, flying for the national airline, uh, is a is a very respectable job, a very desirable one, and uh, he was uh, a rock star basically. Um, the first officer uh, that was flying with him was a fairly junior first officer, fairly new to the airline, but uh, he had great background as well. And it appears the dynamic between the two were what you would expect—very professional, but also friendly. I'm sure the captain with his experience was uh, trying to impart as much of that as he could to the first officer to help with his mentoring and education. And uh, that's a, a very normal uh, crew situation that they, it appears that they had. Can you explain to us the, 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 you, you spoke about this a little bit earlier, but the, what they believe the flight pattern was um, for this flight. And uh, in your opinion, what is it, tell us about what could have happened well yeah up everything was was perfectly normal uh when an when an aircraft when an airliner is going to fly somewhere the very first thing that happens is the airline's dispatcher that has responsibility for that flight 
among other things, files a flight plan with air traffic control. And that flight plan uh, is shows the entire route of flight from takeoff to touchdown, uh, the speeds and the altitude the aircraft intends to fly. And then uh, part of what the crew will do is receive their air traffic control clearance, which in most cases uh, just confirms that same route of flight. But everybody agrees the route of flight the airplane is going to take. And uh, up until that uh, point between uh, Singapore air traffic control and Vietnam air traffic control, the aircraft was quite in compliance with that route. Uh, then all of a sudden the event occurred and the aircraft uh, stopped transmitting uh, the, the routine voice uh, reports. The transponder was turned off and we do know that the transponder was turned off. It wasn't like there was a catastrophic failure. And I can get into that if you like, but there's data that shows the transponder was intentionally turned off. And then that's the last we hear of the flight. Uh, then we start having to dig deep and uh, find those primary radar targets and things of that nature. Yeah. What does that tell the fact that the transponder was uh, turned off? What does that tell us? It tells us that uh, human intervention uh, occurred in a very uh, abnormal way and that uh, this was purposefully done. Mm. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. We all have stress and anxiety we carry around as we go about our everyday life. At The Alarmist, we know it's always better to say it out loud and talk it through. Whenever I stress about the sinking of the Titanic, I don't sit with those thoughts in a dark room. I turn on the lights and dive right into it. Therapy is a great place to get things off your chest and work through what's really going on. Maybe you can't stop spiraling or catastrophizing. I started therapy over 10 years ago and never looked back. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. 
Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Heck, we sometimes change our minds and rethink the verdict at The Alarmist. And that's also okay when it comes to therapists. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com Alarmist today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Alarmist. The, and, and does any deviation from the flight plan uh, require communication with um, air traffic control or, or are small changes able to be made at the discretion of the pilot? No, even if, if we desire if we desire to make a small change, maybe to avoid a thunderstorm or maybe we want to take what we colloquially call a shortcut because these route of flights that are filed uh, go from waypoint to waypoint and it may not be a straight line and we have equipment on board the aircraft that would allow us to navigate great distances in a straight line so we may ask for a direct routing but you can't under uh, when you're under um, instrument flight rules which all aircraft uh, airliners operate under instrument flight rules even the smallest change a route of flight has to be approved by the air traffic controller before you do it wow can you walk us through the plane's depressurization uh, process? We, we understand that it's possible that the masks might have dropped uh, if the plane was at a certain elevation. And um, how much oxygen would have been uh, or time do the passengers have before ox- oxygen runs out in the plane? Certainly. So aircraft typically cruise uh, in anywhere from uh, 30,000 feet, as high as 41 or 45,000 feet, depending on the aircraft, how long you're flying, things of that nature. And obviously, the ambient air pressure at those altitudes aren't nearly enough to sustain life. So the aircraft is, of course, pressurized. Well, we have systems on board, or should that pressurization system fail? Or should, for example, uh, there be a breach of the aircraft cabin itself where the pressure could escape? then that's when the oxygen masks will deploy in the cabin. Uh, The pilots will put on their oxygen masks and an emergency descent will be initiated to get the airplane down to an altitude, typically 10,000 feet, if there's no terrain that will allow people to breathe normally without the oxygen system. Mm. Uh, And so that descent is only going to take you, uh, depending on uh, the situation that you have, anywhere from maybe 10 to 15 minutes, uh, maybe a little more, a little less, depending on the situation. So the amount of oxygen that's provided for the passengers is enough to sustain uh, through that descent with the assumption that we're going to get down to an altitude where oxygen is no longer required. It is a certainly a possibility uh, within the aircraft, you do have the, the pilots do have the ability, as we refer to it, dumping the cabin pressure, mm. where activating some cockpit controls will allow the air pressure inside the aircraft to escape. One reason we would do that is, for example, if a fire was to break out on board the aircraft or we were to get some sort of uh, noxious fumes inside the aircraft. Maybe there was a there was another failure in the pressurization system, and that allowed uh, some exhaust fumes, for example, to enter the cabin. We certainly don't want to have that in there, so we have the ability to dump the cabin pressure. Uh, if that is done, but the aircraft does not descend, the oxygen will still be available to the passengers, but it's going to run out in 15, 20, 25 minutes or so. However, 
The flight crew in the cockpit uses a different oxygen system installed in the aircraft than what the passengers are using. And that is enough to sustain oh, one pilot for, or sorry, two pilots in the cockpit for, you know, an hour and a half or so. One pilot for possibly even more than that, three to four to five hours of time. Wow. Now uh, that, that it's starting to make a, a lot of sense. Um, it, at first, many people thought that the plane had been hijacked, but why, why have experts ruled this theory out? Well, I wouldn't say it's ruled out entirely. Okay, yeah. Um, uh, because the the biggest thing, and, and yeah, that's the, the two main theories are that either it was a September 11th style plan mm-hmm. or the pilot uh, one or both of the pilots initiated this one or the other. I think those, those are, it's, those are the only two theories that make any sense here. The thing that's working against the hijack theory, and it's a very big problem is bluntly, no group has taken responsibility. Um, I don't remember how long it was after September 11th, when the events occurred that morning, but uh, as I remember it, by the end of the day, we knew it was uh, Osama bin Laden and Al-Qaeda had taken responsibility for it. It was pretty clear. Uh, ten years, almost 10 years, 10 years this March, no one's taking credit for it. So if a terrorist organization is going to go to this trouble and successfully, you know, e- even who knows what the plan may have been, but to at least, you know, take this aircraft out of the world, which essentially happened, no one's taking credit for it. That's probably the largest thing working against it being a a terrorist hijack uh, situation. Um, The one big thing that points to a terrorist hijack situation is the fact that if the pilots, one of the pilots or both of them had done this intentionally, typically when a pilot makes this decision, the event happens pretty quickly. Um, There was an Egypt air flight. And then, of course, recently we had a German wings flight where the pilots committed suicide and they do it fairly quickly. Um, The thing that is really strange about this is the fact that it does appear the aircraft remained airborne until it ran out of fuel. Hmm. And that was they had taken extra fuel for the flight, which was a uh, uh, and that's that uh, can be was done. That can be done for any number of reasons to load additional fuel above and beyond what you need for the specific flight for any number of reasons. But in this specific case, that was done as well. Um, I believe from the time it disappeared from air traffic control, they projected they had upwards of uh, six to seven hours of fuel remaining. And that's one reason uh, that they uh, realized the airplane could have ended up in the Southern Indian Ocean. Um, Typically, when a pilot has done this type of tragic event, it's done much, much more quickly than that. And that's, that's what's really strange about this one. Mm. In general, are there protocols in place to identify a pilot in emotional or, or mental distress, even in the early stages? And, and who's responsible for carrying that out? Well, in the United States, um, airline pilots are required to get the aviation medical examination from an FAA designated aviation medical examiner, um, depending on age, either every year or every six months. Mm. And part of that, uh, of part of that uh, examination uh, 
is would be questions from the examiner and there may not be very many right now uh just you know how how have things been and giving the the applicant a chance to talk about any issues that there there may be um we're all familiar with the situation that happened uh on the uh horizon airlines alaska flight uh, with a pilot that was going through some emotional and mental disturbances. And the FAA has formed a task group that is uh, looking at uh, mental and emotional health for pilots and see if any changes need to be made in the evaluations here in the United States. Now, what are what do you believe happened to the plane and its passenger? What's wh- passengers? What, what What is your opinion? Well, I I know I'm pretty clear. It's it's clear what happened to the airplane. Mm -hmm. It uh, for for reasons undetermined at this point, the aircraft was intentionally deviated from its its flight planned path. It flew uh, back toward Malaysia and then continued on into the southern Indian Ocean, uh, pretty far off the Australian coast. Ran out of fuel and went into the water. Uh, we know that for two reasons. Uh, number one, the uh, uh, a few bits of wreckage have washed up on the eastern, the southeastern African coast, and uh, there have been a number of uh, uh, hydrologists and uh, sea state folks that have said that yeah, if the airplane had gone into that area, that's where we'd expect parts to wash up, and that occurred. Um, believe it or not, the, uh, a couple of the pieces that, that did wash up in the, uh, uh, in the African coast, they were able to analyze the barnacles that were attached to the wreckage itself. And that barnacle, the barnacles told a story of where that part had been by looking at the, uh, uh, how it had grown. Uh, apparently with barnacles, they, there are growth rings a lot like what you see on trees. So you mm-hmm. could get a sense of time with that mm. and apparently the makeup of the uh the the chemical makeup of the barnacle itself told you what the water was like where the uh part had come through and that also helped uh, uh let it know that that part had started in the southern indian ocean but there was also um there there the aircraft even though it what didn't have the most advanced digital communication devices like we talked about earlier there were some uh routine uh, digital communication devices on the airplane, those were also intentionally turned off. And we knew that because um, both Malaysia Airlines and the air traffic control facilities were trying to contact the aircraft using those digital uh, devices, didn't have any luck. But one device was left on, and there may not have even been the ability to turn that off. And that device was essentially the satellite communication router. I'm, I'm simplifying here a little bit. But the uh, all the things that were connected to that satellite router, the in-flight entertainment system, um, some of the crew communication systems, the satellite phones, all of those things that were connected to that router were turned off. But the router itself still remain powered, it appears. And the Inmarsat satellite company, which is what Malaysian Airlines contracted with to provide that satellite communication, um, there were a couple of pings uh, that they uh, were tracking because 
it was an abnormal situation for that thing to be turned off. And we, and there, when that occurs, the satellite system is designed to automatically just reach out to the router and say, Hey, are you still there? We're not talking to you. Is everything okay? And the router came back from the airplane and said, yep, I'm powered, but nothing else. Wow. But those pings were, those pings were tracked. And unfortunately, only one satellite was tracking that ping. And the thing that's unfortunate about that is with having just one satellite, you can analyze the time it took for that signal to go from the satellite to the airplane back to the satellite. Um, the radio beams travel at a constant speed, happens to be the speed of light, 186,000 miles per second. But because you have that, you have a known speed and you have a known time, now you can calculate a distance. But the problem is with only one satellite that you're tracking it from, that distance is basically like a sphere that surrounds that. Because when you take a point and let's say that you have a one single point and you're 100 miles away from it, well, that 100 miles, you don't know the direction. It could be anywhere 100 miles from that one point. If you had two satellites, you could resolve it down to two points where they, that those distances intersect. Three satellites would give you a, a pretty exact position. And by the way, I just explained how GPS works as well. But having said that, they were <laughs> they were able to uh, uh, they were able to know that okay, we know this known distance from this one satellite. So that's when they initially came up with an arc of where this airplane must be and the arc extended all the way up into China and down into the Southern Indian ocean. Well, the uh, Southern China was easy. That was land. There was no wrecked aircraft there. So we knew it wasn't there had to be down in the Southern Indian ocean. Um, that's how that all came about. And there was no known communication between the passengers and any loved ones back, uh, back home. Um, there was not, didn't seem to have been any attempts uh, to communicate either. Um, what is what do we suspect happened to the passengers? Well, I I guarantee you there were attempts by the passengers, but because the uh, all the communication systems that utilize the satellite system had been turned off, they were mm. uh, unable to communicate. I, I you know. See. I don't know how much internet connectivity that particular aircraft had. It may not have had very much because mm -hmm. as again, it was one of the early aircraft uh, that Malaysian had bought. The aircraft was almost 20 years old. Um, it did have satellite phone available for both the crew and passenger use. If you remember back in the, uh, uh, I think I want to say it was the late nineties through the mid two thousands, us airliners used to have credit card phones on board. Mm -hmm. Those that was a very rudimentary satellite system, but it uh, the Malaysian aircraft did have that available for the passengers, but uh, that system was turned off. Mm -hmm. And we know that because folks on the ground were trying to call the aircraft using those systems didn't have any luck. Um, I see the yeah, if uh, we talked about the depressurization scenario where, for example, if if the pilot had been or the pilots had been responsible for this and they basically wanted to put everybody to sleep. That's what would have occurred in a, in a depressurization scenario where you don't descend the aircraft down the, uh, uh, the oxygen masks would automatically deploy and they would put the oxygen masks on and they would be awake and conscious and, you know, wonder what's happening. 
the oxygen would run out uh, 15, 20 minutes. If the air pressure in the airplane, if they were still up at 35,000 feet, people would just eventually go to sleep. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, depending on the age and fitness of a person, uh, they might be able to, uh, that might be enough, the air pressure might be enough to sustain life for a long time. Uh, they wouldn't be conscious, but uh, you'd certainly be able to, uh, people would, would would be able to sustain life at that air pressure for a long time. But even then, uh, it after a while, uh, people aren't going to, it won't be enough uh, to sustain life. Uh, and it appears that as long as this aircraft stayed airborne for seven, seven and a half hours, uh, it, it would have been a very challenging situation for people. Wow. So that appears to, in this case, we don't know about the depressurization uh, situation at this point. Right. Um, I, when, and I, and I do like to say when, when we do find the aircraft wreckage and the flight data recorders, they will be uh, they will be able to solve the riddle essentially. Now the flight, there are two types of recorders on the aircraft, cockpit voice recorder and flight data recorder. The cockpit voice recorder is going to be useless in this case because the cockpit voice recorder on this particular aircraft only recorded records two hours of time. And then it's just a constant loop and there's constantly overriding the last two hours because the airplane flew flew for over seven hours after the event started, who knows what's going to be on there? Probably a whole lot of nothing. Wow. However, the flight data recorder uh, traps data for 25 hours before it starts to overwrite. And the amount of data that is trapped will be quite useful. It will, for example, all uh, a lot of the uh, cockpit switch positions, like the pressurization controls, that'll all be recorded. So we'll be able to find out what happened with that. Uh, if a hijacker took control of the aircraft, we would expect to see a lot of, shall we say, fumbling around with the cockpit controls and the autopilot controls. That will be recorded. If the pilots were responsible for this, you wouldn't see that fumbling. The pilots obviously know how to fly the airplane. Mm -hmm. And you would see very deliberate and very... Uh, you know, with, without a lot of mistakes being made with what they're trying to do to control the aircraft. So once the flight data recorder is recovered, that uh, a lot of this will unravel and we'll get a lot of answers to all this stuff. So unfortunately, we're running out of time, um, but we do like to ask all of our guest experts this question. At the end of the day, if you had to pick a person or thing, it could be a concept that you think is to blame for the disappearance of Malaysian Airlines Flight 370, who or what would that be? Uh, as as much as it as as it hurts me to say this, I, I do believe the captain or the pilots were responsible. Mm. So that brings to the question: What can we do in the future to prevent a pilot that is contemplating this type of activity? access to the cockpit that is going to be a very challenging question for the industry to answer but unfortunately it's becoming clear that that's a question we're going to have to take on mm. scott thank you so much for uh helping us understand this this tragic and um haunting disaster you bet my pleasure thank you very much if you'd like to hear our post-interview discussion and final verdict, head over to Patreon and subscribe. 
Your support is greatly appreciated. Check out our show notes for a link or head over to patreon.com slash the alarmist. And stay tuned because next week we'll be discussing the Kendall Jenner. Pe- when you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouthwatering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Commercial. The Alarmist. Powered by ACAST.